Welcome to Slaking Thirst, a podcast that's all about bringing the thirst deep within our hearts for love and communion to the heart of Christ, a divine heart who is seeking our love and communion in return. The hope is that the two thirsts would meet and both thirsts would be slaked. We're looking pretty good in our dazzling white garments. Like, I wonder if it looked like this. <laughs> a vision of the resurrection. <laughs> pretty great. All right. Lots to talk about tonight. I, uh, I have my, my I've, I've got my sweat cloth with me, so that's how you know I'm going to be pretty serious tonight. All right. In the, ancient, in the ancient creed of Nicaea that we proclaim, or even the older formula of the Apostles' Creed uh, that we profess, we say that Jesus suffered, died, and was buried. And then, here's the thing, because we've said this so many times for so many years, we don't even notice how weird it is. After we've said he suffered, died, and was buried, we then say that something happened next. Think about that. For the entire human history, the history of everything that's ever lived, any time that anything has suffered, died, has been buried, that's it. That's the end of the story. Nothing happens next. But we say he suffered, died, was buried. Something happened next. He descended into hell. Before he rose again from the dead on the third day, he descended into hell. Hades in the Greek, Sheol in the Hebrew, what does that mean, that he descended into hell? And what is, what is he doing there? What is he doing there? Friends, this is what the church invites us to contemplate tonight. This is what has traditionally been called the harrowing of hell, the invasion of hell. That's what we're contemplating tonight, especially for our eight friends who are about to become Catholic tonight by being baptized. Robert, I don't see you wearing a wetsuit I warned you. (laughs) And for everyone else making confirmation of First Eucharist, I'm convinced tonight that the grace that Jesus wants us to walk away with is an unshakable confidence. Just an unshakable confidence and an unshakable hope and awe in what he's done. I want to start with this section from the, the prophet Isaiah, chapter 49 from Isaiah. The Lord says, Can the prey be taken from the mighty? Or the captives of a tyrant rescued. Surely thus says the Lord, even the captives of the mighty shall be taken, and the prey of the tyrant shall be rescued. For I will contend with those who contend with you, and I will save your children. Then all flesh shall know that I am the Lord your Savior and your Redeemer, the Mighty One of Jacob." I want to say a word real quick about this word, redeemer, that we're so used to hearing. The Hebrew word there is goel. Goel. Goel was a very particular word, a very particular idea, institution in the world of ancient Judaism. The goel was the eldest son of the family. He had these certain familial familial responsibilities that if there was some type of, you know, violence between clans or between one family and a rival family, there was, there, it was the oldest brother's responsibility to ensure that, that justice was done, that vengeance was taken, that, or in, in, the, in extreme cases, if someone was kidnapped, the Goel was the one who was to offer himself for the one who was taken. This is what Jesus is saying. This is what God is saying. I'm going to be your Goel. That's who he is. That's who... 
I mean, that's certainly who Jesus seemed to be. When you read the first couple chapters of all of the Gospels, Jesus seems to be doing this, accomplishing this in his ministry of preaching and teaching, healing, right, raising people from the dead, curing blindness and deafness, overturning the tables, confronting the powers of be. He certainly seems to be the Goel. Then things take a turn. Something happens. It seems to end catastrophically. He's arrested. He's condemned. He's scourged. He's crucified. All the events we saw yesterday, and he dies. Like the one who raised the dead dies. That dead man on the cross, the one we were venerating yesterday, what kind of goel is that? Does it appear, like just look at Jesus on the cross. Does it appear as though he's contending with our enemies? Does it appear as though he's rescuing us? Does it appear as though he could do anything for anybody, let alone to rescue someone from the grip of a tyrant? Does it appear like he could do anything? No, it doesn't appear so. Here's the question. What was Jesus doing on that Friday that we call good? And what was he doing in this descent into hell? Because, I mean, it might seem like an odd question, right? Because it certainly seems like everything is being done to him, but it's not. Let us remember who this one is. This is the one who is speaking in the first reading we had tonight. The one who says, let there be light, and there's light. The one who says, just as if it's a nonchalant, off-the-cuff comment, oh, let me make the stars also. Do you know how many stars there are? Let's, tar- let's count them. One, two, two. We're going to be here for a long time. This is the God who made a universe that's 46 billion with a B, light years across and ever expanding. This is God, the second person of the Trinity, who wields unimaginable, universe-creating, planet-breathing, star-sneezing power. This is our God. Which means that the crucifixion was not some tragic event that happened. It wasn't simply the unfortunate outcome of a life that was so full of promise. It wasn't as though his career was cut down in the prime like, oh man, what were the homilies of Jesus going to be like when he was 50, 60 years old? If only he had lived longer and not been cut down in his prime, that was not who he was. This was the whole point. This was the whole point. This is the reason why God came. It says in the New Testament, it says the reason the Son of Man appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. He came in the flesh, not simply to tell stories, not simply to walk on water, not simply to do miracles or healings. He came not to impress. He came to do a deed, to accomplish something, to confront an enemy, namely to rescue the creature he loves the most, who we heard in the culmination of that first reading. Let us make man in our image after our likeness. This creature among creatures, this is the sole creature. We as human beings are the only creatures God made in his own image and likeness, destined to share in his own divine glory for all eternity. Like all these other creatures that God made are amazing and cute and wonderful. Baby pandas and otters are cute and awesome. But they're not made in the image and likeness of God. They're not destined for eternal glory. That's what God has made us, to share in his own abundant life for all eternity. If you're here on Holy Thursday, you hear me preach 
that Jesus is the one who came to answer Isaac's question. Father, here is the knife, here is the wood, here is the fire. Where is the lamb for the sacrifice? God will provide himself the lamb for the sacrifice. No one thought that, that's what, that this is what that meant. That God would robe himself in human flesh and frailty. That he would offer himself. That he didn't come wielding a sword. He came wielding his heart. Vulnerable and exposed. He came to be the lamb slaughtered for the salvation of the world. But again, from whom did this creature, from whom did we need to be rescued? God calls him the tyrant. Satan in the New Testament. Hosatanas, the accuser. Jesus calls him the father of lies, the murderer from the beginning. And he has one objective. And we hear it, Jesus tells it in John 10. He says, the enemy has come to steal, to kill, and to destroy. That's his objective for your life and my life. That's who he is. That's what he wants. He's not cute. He doesn't have red horns and a pitchfork. John Paul II said, have nothing to do with him. He's a malign force beyond reckoning. A third of the heavenly host fell in rebellion with him because he hates us, our human nature, our flesh, our bodies, the fact that God bestowed upon us the great dignity of joining us to his own divine nature. See, the enemy, this creature, this angel originally made good by God, this angel who rebelled, again, out of envy towards us, found this idea of the incarnation so repugnant so beneath not only God's glory, but his own divine, his own angelic glory. He said, I will not serve this. And he goes to war against the creature God loves the most, and that's you and me. And he deceived our race in the beginning. We don't hear that story in the Easter Vigil readings. We skip over Genesis chapter 3. But if you miss Genesis chapter 3, you miss the whole point of everything. You miss Genesis 3, the fall. You miss everything. It was in that moment the enemy approached our first parents and deceived them with a lie. And from that moment, we became willing captives, if you will. We became held in bondage, slavery to powers that we were helpless against. Sin with a capital S. Death with a capital D. The image that captures this for me in many ways is Remember years ago, oh, maybe like 10 years ago or so, remember that amazing story of those three girls from Cleveland who had been kidnapped by Ariel Castro, those three teenage girls, Amanda Berry, Gina DeJesus, Michelle Knight, teenage girls coming home from school, kidnapped by this sadistic man, held in bondage in his basement for over a decade, subjected to the worst kind, unimaginable torture and use, and abuse, and rape, and violence, and mental anguish. And this was their life for the rest of their life. This is our humanity in bondage to an enemy far worse than that. This tyrant who's at war with us, he entrapped our humanity under the dominion, in the, the kingdom, the authority, the power, if you will, of sin and death. These powers that were helpless against. I mean, just think about it. Like, you don't have to raise your hand, but like, has anybody here ever done something you hate doing, you know is wrong, you don't want to do, you hate the outcome, and you do it anyway? Like, like this morning, probably, right? Like, like, welcome to humanity. Like, what is this in us that, like St. Paul says, the good that I want to do, I do not do. 
And the evil that I don't want to do, that is what I do. What is this power, this force that is pressing itself upon me, that's bending me towards evil away from God? It's the dominion of sin. And even worse than sin is the dominion of death. Like not only do we not want to sin, but we do anyway. We most certainly don't want to die, but we will all die. Death lords itself like a pompous schoolyard bully. I will have all of you, death says. Everything that has breath, I will have you. You will be in my belly. But because of what the Lord Jesus has done, that foe was defeated. Friends, this is why the Easter Vigil, this is why from the very beginning of the church, the church has has set the Easter Vigil within the context of contemplating, yes, all these scripture readings, but the, the central reading is that story of the Exodus, that story of the crossing of the Red Sea. This is the backdrop that the church is saying. This is what God allowed his, his beloved children to experience in the Old Testament to be a prefigurement of what he was going to do now. He wanted to evoke the memory that there is an enemy, there is a tyrant who held us in bondage, and there's a God who delivered us into freedom. That is who Jesus is. He's the one who defeated the foe. This is what the Lord says. This is what the Lord says through his servant Moses. Fear not. Stand firm. And see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. He says, for the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you, and you have only to be still. Like, this is our Jesus. This is what we're proclaiming tonight. This is what this candle is proclaiming tonight. He is not merely, like, kind. He is utterly unconquerable. This is who Jesus is. This is our commander. This is our king. This is our Lord and our lamb. This is the one who says, I am telling you, you just have to stand still. I will fight for you. I will bring you home. So how does he overthrow him? In the most unforeseen, unimaginable way. Jesus says the night before he suffers and dies, no one takes my life from me. You hear it with that tone. No one takes my life from me. I lay it down of my own accord. I have the power to lay it down and I have the power to take it up again. See, Satan's pride blinded him to the possibility. He couldn't have imagined God taking on the frailties and limitations of our human flesh. That God would fit himself on the hook of the cross by becoming the worm of humanity to catch the big fish called death. He couldn't have imagined that God would have that kind of humility. Like, what a trap. What an ambush. It's in and through his death his death, that life and light. That's who he says he is. I am, I am the way, the truth, and the life. He says, I am the light of the world. By his death, life and light invade the fortress of death and darkness. He wanted the prey to come close. He wanted to be swallowed by the fish. He wanted to be swallowed by the monster. He wanted to get into the belly of death so that he could explode it from the inside out. Our Eastern Rite brothers and sisters in their icon of the resurrection. In fact, it's the very cover. Pull out your worship aid for tonight. Look at the image on the cover of the worship aid. That's the icon of the Eastern Church for the resurrection. 
You see Jesus there standing on the gates of hell. Shattered chains and shackles beneath his feet. The image on the cover, right? That's what you're looking at. In one hand, he's holding Adam. In the other hand, he's holding Eve. He's hauling them out of the fortress of death. Listen to this. This is from St. Ephraim the Syrian. This is one of his Easter homilies, okay? Death trampled our Lord underfoot, but he, in his turn, treated death as a high road for his own feet. He submitted to it, enduring it willingly, because by this means he would be able to destroy death in spite of itself. Death slew him by means of the body which he had assumed, but that same body proved to be the weapon with which he conquered death. Concealed beneath the cloak of his manhood, the Godhead engaged death in combat, but in slaying our Lord, death itself was slain. It was able to kill natural human life, but was itself killed by the life that is above the nature of man. Death could not devour our Lord unless he possessed a body. Neither could hell swallow him up unless he bore our flesh. This is the best part. And so he came in search of a chariot in which to ride to the underworld. This chariot was the body which he received from the virgin. In it, he invaded death's fortress, broke open its strong room, and scattered all its treasure. You are, O Lord, incontestably alive. Can I get an alleluia? Oh man, that's, that was pretty good. Look, guys, so many of us are so accustomed, like I said, to thinking of Jesus as merely kind and gentle and compassionate and loving and merciful. And thanks be to God, he is all of those things, or I would be toast. We would be toast. But he's not just kind. He is, but he's not just kind. And he is merciful, but he's not just merciful. He is Lord. We heard it in that psalm. The Lord is a warrior, and he has no rival. So here's the question. What difference does all of this make? Let me try and put it gently. Are you kidding me? (laughs) Are you kidding me? Like, what difference does this make? Are you serious? This makes all the difference in the world. Like, especially for you eight, who are about to be grafted onto the body of the one who death can't hold. In him is the power that death finds detestable. Death doesn't like how Christians taste, y'all. It's a good thing. Because yes, death will come for us, but death can't hold us because of Jesus. Right? Death. Death was destroyed. Death was destroyed. Which means as Christians, when the power of Jesus enters us through the power of the sacraments, we don't have to be afraid of death. Amen? We do not have to be afraid of death. St. Paul says, for me, life is Christ. And death get this, is gain. Our world says death is loss. Death is calamity. Death is the end. Death is the worst thing imaginable. And don't get me wrong, it is sad and awful, but it is not the end. The cross does not have the final word, but the empty tomb does. Second, Jesus has rendered the power of sin impotent. He stripped it. He's unmasked it as a sham. Like, for ourselves, like, how often do we feel stuck in sin, the same patterns of sin, the same habitual things? You come back to the confessional, the same things over and over again. The whole premise of the Christian life is that you and I can change. Like, Jesus did not come so that we could cope better. 
He came to effect a transformation in the deepest DNA of our heart and soul and mind. Like he's not simply asking us to try harder. He's saying, actually surrender to me. Just stand still and I will fight for you. Surrender to the power of the one who raised Jesus from the dead. Look, the truth is, especially for you eight after tonight, I wish it would be the case that we could say you will never sin again. But just look at all the Catholics behind you and just... And all the hours of confession, Father Joe and I have heard this week, you're going to sin again. Here's the thing. We don't have to. We don't have to. I don't have to respond with anger. I don't have to enter into gossip. I don't have to lie. I don't have to lose my patience. Like in the name of Jesus and by the power of the Holy Spirit, like the power that raised Christ from the dead and the authority that he has given me, I claim authority over those powers, like spirit of gossip, spirit of deceit, spirit of control, spirit of anger, spirit of lust. You don't have authority over me. I don't belong to you. I belong to Jesus. I don't have to sin. I don't have to go back and live in Ariel Castro's basement, although sometimes I think I need or I want to. And finally, here's the last thing, the difference it makes, that you and I have a mission Jesus sends us, he sends us out on mission to do what? To get his world back. By witnessing to the one who has saved us, right? Rescued people, rescue people. That's what's happening to you eight tonight. That's what happened to you at your baptism. And I'm going to remind you when I sprinkle you with water to get you nice and soaked to remind you that this is what happened to you at your baptism. Rescued people, rescue people. We must tell others what we've heard and seen and experienced. You have to share the gospel. And the gospel, it's simply this. You matter. You matter to God. The God who created the universe. Like that big God who rollerblades on the rings of Saturn. That God. He says, you are worth the trouble of becoming man and going to the cross so as to rescue and fight for that you and I are loved beyond anything we could hope for or imagine. He descended into hell, your hell, my hell, all the worst hells. He descended into hell to speak this message to us that you matter. He went that far to whisper into the tenderest places of your heart. You matter to me. I've come for you, and I'm taking you home. He is truly risen. Amen.